The 0-2 to Turner, and he throws this one. Deep left field. Trey Turner. Grand slam home run on an 0-2 pitch. The United States takes a 9-7 lead. Hey now! What's up, everybody? It is the Sportscasters Podcast. My name is Steve Bennett. Season 13, episode 5, March 28th, 2023. On the show tonight, the great Kenny Albert joins us fresh off that amazing call at the World Baseball Classic. And Evan Drellich joins us to talk about his book about the Astros. I recorded that a couple weeks back. Sorry for the delay since the last episode. Uh, my father, Ed, had a stroke. Talk about more of that in one last thing, but took me away from the show for a minute. But we're back. Lots of uh, guest book coming up soon on the show. Justin Bourne will be on next week. Uh, the authors of a book called Red on Red, Phil McNulty and Jim White will be on the show together. Uh, Frank Izola will make his debut on the podcast, as will Joe Davis. And also we will have the... Um, 10-year anniversary celebration of Yale winning the national championship. All that in April. All right. Tonight, first things first, before we get going, before we get into business, Italy had their first games of 2023, uh, the national team. And it was interesting because, you know, Roberto Mancini has been a pretty pretty good skipper for Italy, I think. He has never picked a good roster and he's never put out a good 11 if you follow Italy online you'll know this no matter who he picks he doesn't pick the right guys and no matter who he starts he doesn't start the right guys so I try to avoid those traps but I will say he started the wrong guys against England uh, the first game we're now qualifying for the 2024 Euros we have to defend our titles in Germany tournaments less than 450 days away and Italy began or qualifying began across Europe this week in the international break and Italy lost their first game 2-1 to one to England. Now, a lot of teams lost their first game of qualifying, right? Spain lost their first game of qualifying to Scotland, okay? Not England, Scotland. So, one loss, not a big deal. It was the first game of the year. And Italy was behind the eight ball because they didn't play in the World Cup. So, they had two days to get the team together, and they hadn't been together uh, since... November or whatever. They didn't get to play the World Cup in December like England did. So they're behind the eight ball a little bit there. I didn't love the lineup. Uh, Retege made his debut, a controversial debut. Uh, he was born in Argentina, but has the Italy passport. Mancini called him. Uh, he was thrilled to get the call, thrilled to take the call, thrilled to wear the shirt, and he scored in his first two games. Uh, one goal against England and one game against one goal against Malta. The reason I said the lineup was bad is Mancini spent the days leading up to the games kind of complaining about the way the coaches of the club teams in Italy don't play enough Italians and they don't play enough youth on the team. 
and then he put out an old lineup. Jorginho played, Tuali played, um, you know, just an older lineup. And uh, uh, Tuali, not Tuali or however I said it, Tuali played, um, a Kirby played, just really some older players instead of playing younger players. Noto started on the bench, you know. So I think Mancini has to practice what he preaches. If he wants club coaches to play younger players, he needs to play younger players too. And what he hasn't been able to figure out exactly is the mix between players who won the Euros, who are still very useful, like Donnarumma, Verratti, uh, Barella, Espinazola, who was back, thank God. How does he mix these guys with guys who weren't on the team but are young, Fajoli and Noto and some of the other young players, and Ratugi now uh, is, is I think, here to stay. Skamaka played a little bit. He was okay. Unfortunately, Raspadori was injured. Chiesa was injured. Uh, Bonucci was injured. There was a lot of guys not available. Um, the first half against England, just not acceptable. Di Lorenzo was terrible. He plays amazing all year for Napoli as captain. Puts the Italy shirt on, and he's trash. Gives up a penalty. The second goal. Italy even got lucky that England didn't score a third goal. Jack Grealish screwed that up, thank God. Uh, and then the second half, they were awesome but didn't equalize. The second game against Malta was shit. I mean, they got up 2 nothing and did nothing the rest of the game. It was terrible. And, and some of the stall techniques by England were just disgusting. Um, you know, let them have their parade now. Day one of qualifying. And uh, we'll see them down the road again. The Sabres are dead uh, if they weren't dead last time we talked. I haven't watched them much. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing where at this point, if you're not the Saints and you're not Italy and you're not making me happy, I'm not watching you. You know, and the Sabres, when they give up that hat trick to Ryan O'Reilly after already giving up a hat trick to Jack Eichel this year, I, I just kind of lost them a little bit. I lost my will to cheer for them. I'm excited about the project overall. You know, I think they're building something very good. I don't think Jordan Greenway is going to be a part of it. I know they made that kind of a bold trade, and, and I didn't mind it at the time, but he's done nothing. He stinks. You know, I think this is Akposo's last year. I think there's some merits to maybe bring Gergensen's back. You know, someone has to be on the fourth line. Uh, but there'll be even more young players next year mixed in with some veterans. I'm sure that they'll sign from the outside. And the most exciting thing left about this season is will we see Devin, Devin Levi? And when we do, how does he look? So that will be... Uh, one last thing for them. Baseball is here. I mentioned the World Baseball Classic earlier. And a weird thing happened with the World Baseball Classic. You had to pick sides, it seemed like. It was like Van Halen with uh, Sammy Hagar or David Lee Roth or something. You either had to love the World Baseball Classic, thus hating Major League Baseball, or hate the World Baseball Classic because you love Major League Baseball. It was really weird. I decided to like both, and the Classic was great. There were some really great games, great crowds, good drama, huge home runs, a great final. You know, it ended with uh, Trout and Otani facing off against each other. Otani getting the strikeout and the win for Japan. I think the whole tournament was a win for baseball. I understand what people are saying as well. I understand the drawbacks, but, you know, it was a good tournament. Obviously, if you're a Mets fan, you're devastated. You know, you're devastated Diaz got injured. If you're an Altuve fan, an Astros fan, we'll talk more about them with... Uh, with Evan later, you're devastated. It sucks to lose your guy. You know, the Maple Leafs lost Tavares in the Olympics a few years ago. Or I guess he was still the Islanders then. 
Uh, regardless, he was missed, and it cost the Islanders maybe a spot in the playoffs. So I understand that, but just strictly from a fan perspective, because I'm not an executive for any major league team, uh, it was awesome. And and I think baseball being awesome is important. I'm excited to see what games look like with the pitch clock. You know, the Braves are going to start Max Fried on opening day. Um, Kyle Wright's on the DL already. Some inflammation in his shoulder. I guess he's going to be all right. Hopefully he'll play the second week of the season. Spencer Strider's back ready to go. Mike Soroka didn't make the team. So I guess he's never going to be anything ever again. They sent down Grissom, which I was really surprised about. It'll be interesting to see how long he stays down. Some of the younger guys in camp that they sent down, is that a player control issue or do they really think that those guys aren't ready for the big leagues? We'll see. I want to do a, a, a spot with someone who covers the Braves at some point here. Uh, one last baseball note, Anthony Anthony Volpe, uh, the Yankees prospect, made the team. Um, and I just want to clarify for Pablo Torre or for anyone else, he is an Italian-American baseball player, already honored by the Italian-American Baseball Federation. Uh, and we're happy to have him in the big leagues, and I'm excited to watch him in pinstripes this year. All right, opening day, the 30th, in a couple days. Enjoy. Nothing better than than baseball uh, being back and, and just kind of its daily presence in the background or the foreground of your life, uh, wherever you keep it. We're down to the final four in hockey and basketball. Uh, quickly, the basketball tournament was nuts. Uh, no one in the top three seeds are in. UConn was my pick to win the tournament before it started, so I'm winning some bracket pools. I'm in this bracket pool called Pool of Three, and I've been in it for years. Never has the winner of this pool not had the champion. And I could do that this year if UConn wins the first game. It doesn't matter if they lose the final. I'll be the winner. And if UConn doesn't win the first game, the winner won't have the champion either. So a first there, less than 100 points in our pool for the winner. A wild final four, FAU, Miami, UConn, and San Diego State. Shout out to our boy Rob Mish, big Aztecs fan. His school's in the final four in Houston. Uh, and we'll be pulling for him this weekend. Hockey, two weeks till the finals, but Michigan, BU, Minnesota, the blue bloods of blue bloods are joined by those scumbags, Quinnipiac, in the final four down in Tampa. Uh, look, at all eyes will be on anyone playing Quinnipiac. Pranks God that they don't win this year, 10 years after their first final four appearance and championship game appearance against Yale. Hopefully they lose the Again, in the the Frozen Four like they did to North Dakota a few years later as well. Uh, I real quickly wanted to give a shout-out to Hobart. Hobart College in Little Geneva, New York. The Division Three Hockey Champions. Congratulations to the boys there. When my friend Justin played D3 Hockey at Elmira, I went to a D3 Hockey school at Fredonia. I've always been a fan of it. I think it's pure and it's fun. And when the atmosphere is great, the hockey is great. And when I went to see my buddy Justin play Hobart, they had three walls in their rink. It was freezing. You know, it was a program headed for nowhere. And they have built that. That was like 2003. So in 20 years, they've built that up to a national power. They won the uh, national championship over the University of New England in overtime. And D3 hockey at the best NCAA tournament of all time. I mean, they had almost every game go to overtime. And if it wasn't, 
it was like a two-goal game with an empty nutter. So really great stuff there. Congrats to Hobart. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with Kenny Albert. We'll talk about the World Baseball Classic. We'll talk about what's going on with him. He's got a book coming out. He's going to tell us a little bit about that. Even give us an update on Marv Albert. Then I'll be back for the book club. We'll go over what's going on there. And uh, then after that, we will do an interview with Evan Drellich from The Athletic about his book. And then we'll do one last thing after that. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with the great Kenny Albert. Thank you for checking out the Sportscasters podcast. Don't forget to check out my other show, the 24-inch podcast. Hollywood Dave Rollins, Paula Bennett, and myself look back at the career of Hulk Hogan, the immortal one. We do it every other week. We cover matches from the 80s, the 90s, his entire career. We read the news from the era. It's a great nostalgic look back at the greatest wrestling career in the history of the business. Be sure to check it out right on this feed, brother. Hey, Kenny. What's up, man? Hey, Steve. How are you? Good. You will not believe how excited I was. You're not going to maybe you'll believe me, but probably not. When I turned on the World Baseball Classic and heard your voice. You know I love your work, but your baseball stuff, super underrated. How'd that come about? How'd you end up doing uh, baseball class? Fox just asked. Well, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Um, got a call a couple of weeks ago from uh, the folks at Fox asking if I would be able to work the two games in Miami last weekend, uh, the two quarterfinal matchups, along with John Smoltz Friday and Saturday, uh, Mexico, Puerto Rico, U.S., Venezuela. So uh, it was uh, – you know, just as exciting as I expected. Uh, the crowds were unbelievable. Yeah. Um, two two great games. Yeah. Um, you know, a 4 nothing lead for Puerto Rico in the first inning on Friday. And then Mexico winds up coming back, winning that game 5-4. to four, And um, you obviously saw what happened in the in the U.S.-Venezuela game with the United States taking a 3 nothing lead, 5-2 lead. Venezuela takes a 7-5 lead and then... Grand the Trey slam. Turner Grand Slam. Yeah. So it was uh, it was uh, a lot of fun to be a part of, and uh, look forward to uh, as we tape this, watching the championship Champion. game tonight. I'm yeah. here in Denver, getting set for a hockey game tomorrow night. How was pre- preparation for that? Because if the calls came a couple of weeks ago, it's quarterfinals. Obviously, you don't know what teams you're going to get in there, right? So, how do you prepare for something like that? You just go over all the teams. Is it a little different than what you're used to? How did you? Get yourself ready for those games. Well, it, it, it was unique because, um, like you said, uh, had no idea which teams would be in those two games. Yeah, uh, I knew it would be two teams from Pool C and two two teams from Pool D. So um, I actually had an off day in Buffalo, in your neck of the woods, when I was up there uh, for the Ranger Sabers game a couple of weeks ago, and literally was going through the rosters of, uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of hedged my bet a little bit. I, I identified six of the 10 teams okay. uh, that I thought might, uh, you know, I figured four of those six might be the ones to get there. 
And uh, it turned out I was right, so I, I didn't necessarily go deep into all ten. Um, I went with six, but it was still a bit of a scramble uh, during the days leading up to it because, um, you know, really had to go full force on the four teams that wound up getting there uh, once those matchups were set. So I, I felt like it was similar to Olympic hockey when, uh, you know, in the past during six different Winter Olympics, I wound up working two games almost every day and it was so many different countries and probably had a little more lead time because you had the rosters prior to the start of the Olympics, but it was still, still a similar grind as far as the prep work. So, um, you know, I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I watched so many of the other games, whether I was in Buffalo that weekend and then home and in Toronto for a hockey game last week, uh, managed to watch bits and pieces of most of the games that were played, um, involving those teams in the first round. So I was able to follow the storylines and hear what some of the other announcers were talking about and become familiar with, with the players and, and managers and coaches, et cetera. So, um, but it did have the feel of preparing for an Olympics for sure. It was Smoltz you worked with, right? Yeah, he was great. Yeah, I, I had never first worked time? With, yeah, never what... worked with okay. John before, but I knew him a little bit uh, from Fox seminars in past years we actually uh funny story we, we played ping pong against each other okay. about f- five or six years ago um out at a fox baseball seminar which took place prior to, to the season in march and uh I'm, I'm a pretty good ping pong player you know I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it might be my best sport as an athlete and um uh, some of the guys that i worked with at the time knew about that they had some ping pong tables there after dinner they had some recreational activities they had they had ping pong and uh foosball and a couple of other things so um eric Caros, who i've worked with on many many occasions uh he was the matchmaker he put me together with john smoltz uh for a ping pong match and it was kind of nerve-wracking because there were there were some other uh, uh hall of fame types there watching frank thomas was standing there the big hurt was watching this <laughs> ping pong match eric Caros is the all-time dodger home run leader and i had heard that John was a tremendous ping pong player. And in fact, he said that during his entire playing career, he only lost once in the clubhouse. So um, I'm proud to say that I did get 15 points off him in the first game. He won 21, 15. He might've underestimated me a little bit because then in the second and third game, he crushed me. <laughs> I think 21, eight, 21, nine, something to that effect, but uh, w- was very proud to get 15 points. So that yeah. was my only, that was my only real prior, um, you know, engagement with John Smoltz on the ping pong table, but had a lot of fun working with him in Miami. He's obviously, uh, you know, one of the top analysts in, in, in the entire sport, does the World Series every year now, and uh, uh, really a lot of fun to be around. Well, he's legendary for his competitiveness, you know what I mean? And oh, his, absolutely, yeah. whether it's on the golf, golf course. Yeah, all he that. was telling us stories about his high school basketball days. He once made 21 out of 22 free throws during a high school game, so... Um, I, I could tell you how competitive was he was at the uh, at the ping pong table from experience. Yeah, I had him on one time when he did his book. He was really cool, really nice to have him. And I grew up a big Braves fan because of TBS. You know, they're the only team right, I could right. watch that's every day. A lot of people, right? Yeah. A lot of people did around the country. Yeah. By the way, my other ping pong, uh, Steve. My other, yeah. aside from playing every day in the hockey bubble, at another Fox seminar, I actually beat Matt Leiner. Oh, um, nice! Former Heisman Trophy winner. He had an unbelievable serve, so I, w- I was real nervous. But 
um, after that, during the rallies, I managed to get the better of him. So uh, <laughs> that was a big notch. That was a big notch in my belt as well. Do you guys have a? Do you play your daughters and stuff at home? Do you? Do you show any mercy, or you crush them too? Uh, we don't. We don't have a table at home. Um, but uh, like I said, I did spend a lot of time in the bubble right. in Edmonton. I remember you talking about that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. No, that was a lot of fun. It killed some time. <laughs> nice. Very nice. I remember you being on the show the day after the big home run that in Toronto um, and how cool that was, the bat flip and uh, all that and how awesome that. Had you done baseball since then? When was the last time you did baseball? Um, no, since then um, I did the playoffs in uh, – that was 2015. Okay. I also did a series in 16, 18, and 19. Oh, okay. Uh, the, la- the last one was Toronto-Tampa Bay first round series in 2019. So I did a bunch of playoff series since then. Um, hadn't done much in uh, 2020 and 21, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. During the pandemic, uh, there weren't as many games. Right. They did a lot of them out of the studio in L.A. And I was also, uh, you know, so busy with hockey throughout the summer months. And then in 2021, um, hockey went through July, so I didn't do much sure. baseball that right. year. Yep. Um, worked three games last year in, in 2022 and, uh, I'll have a, a, you know, I don't know the exact number, but I'll have some Do this something. summer once, once, nice. once hockey finishes up, but no, it was so much fun to be a part of. And you mentioned the Bautista home run. Yeah. You know, that, that's a call that I get asked about so frequently and it's ironic because I haven't done as much baseball as the other sports, but that call stands out in people's minds. And you mentioned John Smoltz's book. I'm putting the finishing touches on mine which is already really? in to the publisher, and um, I now have the first draft that I'm going through for changes and corrections. So I still have a little bit of time to add some things, and um, I, I will definitely be adding a paragraph about the uh, the WBC games last weekend. There's a thing going around, it seems like, where you either have to hate the WBC, and it's out of some kind of loyalty to Major League Baseball, or you have to hate Major League Baseball and love the WBC or it's this weird thing that will be on the list of weird things that happen on the internet, right? Uh, it seems so awesome, though. I mean, they're saying that tonight's Japan-USA game could be the highest-rated baseball game in the world ever, like the most watched. Um, it seems like the crowds down there were amazing. We know the um, Latino players and the Asian players are usually really into it. It seems like the U.S. team is super damn into it. I know the Italian team was. They had the espresso machine in the dugout. They had a lot of fun, and Piazza made a really good run, considering their talent, too. Um, what did you think about it overall in this kind of silly notion? Now, I know you're in New York, and I know it sucks for Mets fans. Believe me, I know that had to hurt to see Diaz go down like that. And I know the injuries, and I know maybe the timing's not unreal. But what are your thoughts kind of about the tournament in general and the reaction it's getting and what it was like to be there just in terms of like the emotions of it and all that? Well, I think it's been great and being involved in it, obviously I was paying a lot more attention, uh, you know, than perhaps if I weren't going to be working it. Although I still would have watched a lot of the games, I'm sure. Right. Um, I've seen the television ratings in some of these other countries. Uh, we used the note on the game the other night that yeah. in, I think in Japan – there were 48% of households tuned in in the entire country uh, to their previous game. Same thing in Mexico and Puerto Rico and Venezuela. So 
it, it's huge in, in so many of these countries. And um, you're right. I mean, all of the teams, you know, they have so much pride, uh, whether it's the U.S. or any of the other countries that we mentioned. Uh, you know, you want to, you, you love to represent your country. You want to win. And um, the game on Saturday on Fox, I saw uh, 2.26 million, I think, uh, was the rating for the U.S. Venezuela game? So, and that's a great that's rating here pretty, too. That's a great number. Here. Yeah, no, yeah. that's a huge number for a, for a, for a baseball game in March. In you know, March, it's not yeah. a playoff game right. or, or a World Series game, and it, it was on up against the, the tournament. NCAA tournament. Yeah, uh, there was an an NHL game on ABC. There was a lot to choose from that night. Sure. NBA game. So, um, you know, two point two six million uh, is a is a real big number. You know, as far as the injuries, it's unfortunate whether it was Edwin Diaz or Jose Altuve who's out eight to right. ten weeks. But mm-hmm. you know, the, these things are going to happen. We saw John Tavares, Tavares. for example, in the yep. Olympics a couple of years ago. Um, you know, the thing about the basketball in the Olympics is not during the season; it's in the summer. So, if a player gets hurt, there might be a little time, time. to uh, yep. to recuperate. You know, whereas hockey takes place during during the season, the WBC takes place right before the season. Um, but if you ask any of these players, you know, they know there's a risk of injury. But um, for the most part, they love representing their country. They're playing at the highest level. And um, the injuries is just an unfortunate part of it. But I think overall, um, when you look at those TV numbers and ratings around the world, it's been incredible for the sport of baseball. And tonight, um, wouldn't be surprised when you combine the U.S. and the, the ratings in Japan, if it is one of the highest rated games in the sport all time. Yeah, it's such a great location for it, too, I think, in Miami there. You know, um, strong Latin population anyway, uh, and you know they bring the passion. You know what I mean? And um, the stadium has been packed. makes me think, man, the Marlins, they got to get it together because that's a great baseball market when there's something to watch, right? And it seemed really great, and I'm really I – w- I went into it thinking about it only a little – and as it's gone, my excitement and, and feeling about it's grown and grown and grown. What about the Turner home run in the moment? How did you feel you did? Did you like your call? And what do you remember about it? Or what can you tell us about the moment in terms of just being there and watching it all unfold and things like that? I did. When I went back and watched it, um, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I thought, I thought the call was solid. It, it's television versus radio, so there is a little bit of a difference. If it were a radio call, there might be a little more description right. and talking. Yep. But, uh, because because the viewers can see it, it's a little bit of a different call than it might have been on radio. Um, and I think when when I think back to the the Bautista call, um, you know, this one as far as the excitement level and, and what it meant to the country and and the players and the fans, you know, when I think back, I'll, I'll probably put this one right up there. Uh, Trey Turner said it was, you know, the Biggest, biggest of moment life, right? of his baseball yeah. life. You know, he's a guy who's played in a World Series and a lot of playoff games. And, um, you know, I heard he said during the postgame interview with Ken Rosenthal, he almost blacked out as he was running the bases. So um, it's it's definitely a call that I'll remember for a long time. And uh, like I said, we'll be, we'll be adding it to my book. I think it's just cool that it was a grand slam, too. You know what I mean? Like, the grand slam is the ultimate baseball hit right like when you're talking about growing up in the backyard it's always a bottom of the ninth grand slam right it's not just the home run right usually it was a grand slam it gave them the lead Mm -hmm. i mean even if it were a three-run homer it would have given them the lead but no you're absolutely right um and it was on an 0-2 pitch um 
the U.S. had loaded the bases with, with nobody out. So, um, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you knew it was uh, out right away, right? Uh, you were, you were, you, I did. Yeah. 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 You could sense that it was, yeah. that it would be out right away. Wow. Unbelievable. What a moment. It's crazy. So good. Such a, I love the call too. I mean, I'm biased too. Cause we're friends or whatever, but I thought it was great. And I think it's been a great event. So world baseball class, hopefully USA wins tonight. We'll see what happens. It'll be, this will be, the game will be over before this is up. So people will know what happened, but great. I think overall a, a very, very successful tournament. You know what I mean? And I thought of the Tavares thing too. And the NHL hasn't been back to the Olympics yet. I don't think that's the reason though. It's been more about COVID and where it, it's located and negotiations between the owners and players and stuff. But, I do know, and I think that this is a thing we can talk about for a second. These best on best tournaments, they're so great. You know, whether it's, you know, finally getting the dream team in 92, what a moment that was. We, you've talked about that, working with your dad on that, how amazing that was. You know, we, whether it's 98 when the hockey finally started having one. And it's been such a shame, and you, we can talk about this as hockey guys too, that we haven't got to see like Connor McDavid playing one yet. You know, are we going to not see another one before Ovechkin and Crosby leave the game? You know, Matthews hasn't played in anything like this yet since World Junior. You know, but, man, these best-on-best tournaments, countries-wise, are really special for sports, I think. And they're underrated. And you're right. The level of of play, and and you make a good point. I was actually there. I hadn't thought of that, but I was there for the Dream Team games in a behind-the-scenes role, sitting courtside, and then... Um, working hockey Olympics and the World Baseball Classic the other night, so I've gotten to experience it in three different sports. Uh, but when I think back to calling uh, some of the games in in Salt Lake in 2002, and then Torino in 06, Vancouver and Sochi in 2010 and 14, um, it, 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 you could just sense it's another level when you have the best in the world. Yeah, it, it's like it's like every team's an all star team. And I was in the building, not working, but I was in the building for the USA Canada, the Crosby Golden Goal in 2010. Devastating, and yeah, devastating. You know, I'd have to put put yeah. that up there as one of the best games that I've ever seen, as far as the level of competition. USA, yeah, Parise, gold medal yeah, game, Parise best tied players it. in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's a great game. Parise ties it late, and you think, wow, they have all the the uh, energy. And Ryan Miller had a fantastic tournament, right? But you got to did, th- and I'll never forget. I'll never forget how quiet the building got in Vancouver when Parisi scored that goal. Oh, I you could hear a pin drop because yeah. it was mostly mostly Canadians in the building. Yeah, of course. And he, he had such a great term. You got to think Crosby tricked him more than anything. You know what I mean? I just don't think he thought that it was going to come in that quick. I mean, because I mean, probably most of the time Ryan Miller is going to save a shot from there. I don't know, but. Amazing tournament, amazing time. Love the World Baseball Classic. Glad you had such a great time. And glad we got to hear you call such a big baseball moment again. Uh, Hopefully there's more down the line. Uh, With that said, let's talk about the Rangers for a second before I let you go. They made the the two biggest trades, I think, of the trade deadline. Neither were on the exact deadline, uh, but building up to it with uh, Tarasenko and then Patrick Kane. And the team is really one of the best teams in the league right now. Boston obviously has been the best all season. Uh, the Rangers, I think, have won six nothing, seven nothing the last two games, which is really big. And it's, and you could tell me you, you're there. It doesn't seem like Patrick Kane has really gotten going just yet, and I understand why. I think when you think about all the off of the ice things that these hockey players who are such creatures of habit, I know many of them. 
You know, he just hasn't, I don't think, got his total flow and his routine. But I think come playoffs, we're going to see what a great trade that was. But what what can you tell me about the Rangers, how great they're going, um, and what you think about where they're at and how Chris Drury did over the deadline? Well, you're right. He made two huge moves, and I think Chris has done an unbelievable job since taking over uh, prior to last season. Look at the moves he made prior to the playoffs. Last year, they wound up getting to the conference final, game six against Tampa Bay. Yep. Um, you know, this year they lost some of those players. They had to retool the roster, um, picked up Tarasenko and came, like you said, at the deadline. And as we speak, uh, we're taping this. They're about to face off against Carolina, but they have scored uh, 15 consecutive goals since they last allowed a goal. Wow. Uh, they, scored the, they scored the last two in a game against Pittsburgh and then scored six straight in the next game against Pittsburgh and 7 nothing over Nashville. So they're on a 15-0 run, which we usually hear about in basketball and not hockey. But – uh, Patrick Kane, Tarasenko, you know, probably took them both a couple of games to settle in and learn their new teammates and line mates. But, um, you know, despite the fact that it may seem like Kane's off to uh, somewhat of a slow start compared to what everybody expected, he's averaging about a point a game. So um, he's, he's getting his points. He has a bunch of goals. He has uh, some key assists. He's one goal shy of 450 now in his career. So the next one will be a big one. But they, they have the lines in place. Uh, Kreider, Savanajad, and Tarasenko are playing together. Panarin, Trocek, and Kane. Then they have the kids on the third line with Hedl, Lafreniere, and Kako. And they have a really strong fourth line with Barkley, Goodrow, Tyler Mott, and Jimmy Vesey. Um, so, like I said, Tarasenko, Kane, they're kind of learning how to play with each other, but it's gone real well. They're, they're undefeated in their last seven games, 6-0-1. Uh, they get Ly- uh, Ryan Lindgren back tonight. He's missed 11 games, who is paired with Adam Fox, and uh, that's one of the top combos in the league on defense the last couple of years. Keandre Miller and Jacob Truba. Miller had an unbelievable first period the other night against Nashville, four points in one period, which t- uh, set a Ranger record for a defenseman. That had never happened before. And they have last year's Vezina Trophy winner, Igor Shosturkin, in goal. So, who also roll, seems to just 12. be hitting his stride. Sorry, yeah, I think he's just... Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, no, he has over the last uh, seven or eight games as well. Yeah. So, 12 games left. They're on a roll now. Playoffs are not going to be easy in the Eastern Conference. There are so many teams <laughs> that feel they have a shot to go, to go deep. Yeah. It looks like the Rangers will play either Jersey or Carolina in the first <laughs> brutal. round. Brutal, yeah, uh, brutal. And then the other one in the second round, should they win? And then... Probably the Boston Bruins, unless they get upset. So it should be a great playoff. And uh, along with my partners, Eddie Olchek and Keith Jones, we're really excited because we'll take it all the way to the Stanley Cup final this year. We went through the Western Conference final right. between Edmonton yeah. and Colorado last year. And this season, we get to go all the way. How do you think? T- I want to get back to the Rangers, but since you brought it up, how do you think TNT's been in year two versus year one? Um, I think everything's gone really well. Yeah. Uh, a great studio crew. They lost Rick Tockett, obviously, the Vancouver Canucks. They brought in uh, some others to fill in. Sarah Nurse did a great job last week. Uh, Jen Botterill, Henrik Lundqvist, uh, Colby Armstrong, Keith Yandel. So they've gone a lot deeper in the studio this year. And uh, the game broadcast, from our perspective, uh, have gone real well. We have the Avalanche and Penguins here in Denver uh, as we take this tomorrow night. Back in Colorado next week for the Avalanche and Wild, and then in a couple of weeks we'll gear up for the first round of the playoffs. I think there's been a few decent moments, too, in the studio that have kind of went viral, like kind of similar to the way 
the NBA show does for, for basketball. I think as that show's kind of hit its stride, I think we're starting to see that too. Um, part of it, I think, is Gretzky. You know, when people see Gretzky, they want to see what he says about anything. Um, but I think it's been a really good year. Um, I, You know, I love you and Sean McDonough. Both are really great to me. Great guys. Announcers I love my whole life. And I think that the game is broadcast in this country nationally is just on a really in a really good spot right now you know um, well Sean does a terrific job yeah. uh, I really enjoy watching the ESPN broadcast as well but you're right about the studio when when Wayne's in there it's like the old commercial when EF Hutton talks yep. people listen yeah and you always want to hear what Wayne Gretzky has to say and along with Liam McHugh and Anson Carter and Paul Bissonette uh, like I said they lost Tockett obviously to to Vancouver but uh, can't wait for uh, Wayne to rejoin the cast uh, here towards the end of the regular season and then in the playoffs. Yeah, and the playoffs are going to be a beast, like you said, in the East and the... I mean, in the East, with the two divisions, you say, oh, it stinks for Toronto and the Lightning. Well, yeah, but then, you know, the same situation in both sides this year, where I think last year there was maybe a perception that if you were in, um, if you were outside of the Atlantic, that was a little bit of an advantage. So you didn't have to have that first round, but it's not this year. You know what I mean? Between Carolina, the Devils, and the Rangers, um, that that even that half of the bracket is going to be an absolute beast. Um, I wonder. I wanted to ask you because you 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 got to watch Brian Leach really close for a, a bunch of years in New York, around the team, calling the team. Adam Fox, what a season he's having! He's already won in Norris, right? I mean, what can you say about him? What do you see when you watch him? Just in terms of, I knew he was great when he was at Harvard. I didn't know he'd be this good. Um, what do you think about Fox and what you see uh, compared to what you've seen in other years around the league and what you see even from a national perspective when you see guys like Makar, even Rasmus Dahlin, although he's, I think, injured now, um, clearly dragging himself out there doing his best. But so, some great defenders out there um, and great ones coming in the league like you know, Lane Hudson and um, Luke Hughes who I think are benefiting from the way McCarr and Fox have kind of changed the game and the role that defensemen have. What do you think about Fox and how he's been and his development and how great he is and, and what you see in New York? Oh, he's been terrific. It's his fourth year now. I don't know if anybody expected him to be this good. Right. Uh, won the North Trophy two years ago in his second season. He's just so smart. I never thought we'd see anyone in New York come close to, to Brian Leach, but so many plays that Adam Fox makes – your mind wanders back to the to the Brian Leach years. Yeah, uh, just so smart with the puck, um, the, the, the first pass out of the zone, running the power play, uh, some of the passes that we've seen him make, and it's it's really a golden age, I think, for young defensemen. Uh, you look at Cal McCarr, as you mentioned in Colorado, and Quinn Hughes out in Vancouver, and Rasmus Dahlin, and 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 some of the others. I remember out in the bubble in uh, 2020 having the opportunity. In the Western Conference Final, uh, I was working Dallas, Colorado, and Vancouver, Vegas. And on those teams, you had Cal McCarr, Quinn Hughes, uh, Miro Haskin, and Shea Theodore. Wow. And, yeah. and you know, we, we were kind of comparing uh, the four of them to one another. And uh, they've all obviously uh, had great careers, uh, you know, early portion of their careers since then. They've gotten better and better each and every year. We had Fox win the Norris Trophy two years ago. McCarr won it last year along with the Stanley Cup. So uh, we'll see how things play out this season as far as the, the Norris Trophy goes. 
Yeah, unbelievable. The the amount of young. I think the way the the defensemen they're, they're they're maybe not as big and strong as maybe not as many Scott Stevens types, but the way they skate and the way they move the puck and think the puck, I think, is a big reason why we've seen more goals and a little bit more excitement in the league this year. And man, there's just so many good ones. And um, I don't know if you got a chance to see any of what Lane Hudson is doing in college this year for BU, but I mean, he tied. Brian Leach's record for most points as a 19-year-old, an under 19-year-old player. Um, so when you know he's he's in that rare, <laughs> rarefied air as a player. I mean, he's going, he's the Hockey East Rookie of the Year, Rookie of the Month. I mean, he's had an unbelievable year, and Luke Hughes is like matching him at Michigan. So unbelievable time for the for the league with the with the young defensemen out there. Yep, I did have I did have a chance to watch Luke Hughes play in person in a game against Ohio State about a month and a half ago. So uh, I did get the opportunity to see him up close. Your old broadcast partner. What a what a, what a a team she's put together. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you can't find a better team than that, right? Wow. Boy, I feel bad for the Stahl brothers. You know what I mean? They, like, they look like minor leaguers compared to these three kids. Unbelievable. Jack Hughes. No, you're right. These, yeah. young, these young kids are just so fast, great skaters. So many of these youngsters work with skills coaches now and, um, it's just great for the league, and you're right. The games have been more high-scoring and, and highly entertaining. Yeah, and no matter what happens with the playoffs, too, I do hope we get Rangers-Devils just because, you know, Rangers-Devils 94 is my favorite playoff series of all time, um, and it's it's big in New York, and I think it's huge, and just the amount of players. I hope we get to see that this year. Um, that's, like, my number one matchup, whether it's round one or round two. Um, I hope we get it either way. All right, the sports against are here, finishing up with Kenny Albert, who called the World Baseball Classic. Now he's getting ready to call some hockey, and you've done basketball this year relatively consistently too, right? Right. I, I've worked about 15 or 16 uh, Knicks games for MSG Network uh, alongside Walt Clyde Frazier. And uh, sad news today with the passing of yeah, Willis Reed, the Reed, Knicks captain yep. who uh, won the two championships in 70 and 73. But... Uh, the Knicks having a really good year. It looks like they're heading for the playoffs now for the second time in three years. So uh, those games have been a lot of fun as well. And what year will it be next year on Fox for football? Amazingly, next year will be 30. Wow, Hard it is believe. year 30. That's what I thought, but I didn't Hard want to say it Hard wrong. to believe. Unbelievable. We'll have to do something for that. I mean, I still feel like uh, I, I remember the first game like it was yesterday. The Rams and Cardinals. Out in Anaheim on nine four ninety four. Wow, September fourth ninety four. So that their first Buddy year, Ryan. right? Was that their first? Buddy year? Ryan's first game as Cardinals head coach. It was wow. Fox's first year, and yeah. I cover that in my book as well. But it's astounding that it's going to be season number thirty. It's it's just crazy. Well, last uh, real quick, last thing. What can you tell us about the book? When does it come out? What do, what do we? What, uh, what do you really know? Really excited it? about the book. Yeah, it's called a mic for all seasons. Okay, and it's a compilation of stories. A lot of the stuff we just talked about: yeah. memorable games, color analysts, travel tales, uh, growing up, getting into broadcasting, uh, the minor league hockey days, advice for young sportscasters. So, it's a compilation of all those subjects. And I'm actually now reading through the first draft. I handed it in; it was due in September. So the editors went through it, and they actually sent it back to me. I'm reading it on my iPad. It actually looks like a real book now. So, Sweet. Um, I'm getting to that. Did you do it yourself, and or did you do it with someone? I did. Yeah. I did it myself. Wow. Um, proofreading, 
proofreading for my family, my wife and daughters. They helped out, kept in with some ideas, but no ghostwriter. I uh, did it all myself, which Good I wanted you. to do. Yeah. I enjoy writing, and I wanted the stories to come from my mouth. So, um, what published by myself? Uh, Triumph Books, okay, out of Chicago. Yeah. Yep, know them well. Yeah, and uh, I'll give you a little scoop. The uh, the forward is written by there are two: uh, Walt Clyde Frazier and Wayne Gretzky. Oh, nice! <laughs> wow. So, uh, you know they they were kind enough to uh, to take part. Um, how do you, you know, ask Wayne Gretzky to do that? How do you can't can't how, thank them can't thank them enough? How do you ask, how do I Wayne, ask Gretzky? Wayne Gretzky? So I uh, spent a lot of time with Wayne during the playoffs when okay. when he was traveling uh, yeah. for TNT, and um, I knew him back during his playing days with the Rangers. So we, we've sure. had a bit of a relationship for a long time, but really got to know him well during the Colorado Edmonton series. And my original plan was going to um, ask one person from each sport whom I had worked with. Gotcha. But you know, the, 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 the publisher and the, and the editors explained to me that four is too much. You know, it clutters up the cover. You can't really have four different people write the forward. They said, how about two? So okay. wound up uh, with Wayne and Clyde. And uh, a, a number of others were, were real kind enough as well to uh, to write some blurbs that will be placed throughout the book on the back cover, inside as well. So uh, some who are not involved in the forward will will, will certainly be a part of it. But um, wound up asking Wayne during the summer, and he couldn't have been nicer as far as uh, the participation and putting it together and. Uh, but the whole the whole project's been a lot of fun. Uh, started it during the pandemic when I was home for about 146 straight days and wrote wrote the outline and a couple of uh, portions of chapters, I guess, and then finished it up during a, a six week or so period last summer. Awesome Christmas time, maybe? Or are we waiting 2024? Um, a little bit earlier. Oh, they tell oh, me nice. late September, oh, early nice. October. It's actually it's already listed on. Uh, if you Google it, it's already listed on Amazon and Barnes and Noble online, so people are able to purchase uh, copies, advanced copies. I guess at this point, you won't get it until October. But right, yeah, pre-order. Um, you're, you're able to you're able to place the order. Awesome! Can't wait to have it as part of the book club. Love it. All right, you can uh, obviously you can find Cuddy on Twitter and you can listen to him on your TV. If you watch sports, you'll you're, you're gonna bump into him one way or another. I think if you if you know just turn the channel, you'll find him. Uh, but thank you so much for all the time. I always appreciate you, man. Steve, I appreciate it. How's, uh, how's Mars? We have some symmetry, right? We have some symmetry. Symmetry. We chatted the day after the Bautista home yes. run. And now, and now this. What, three days Three days after the Trey Turner Grand Slam? And the day after Saints and 49ers, one of your best football games ever. There you go. So we yeah. have to just keep hoping for iconic moments. Iconic and, moments. And great games. And then, and then we chat the next day. Quick Marv update. How's how's he enjoying retirement? Is he good? He's good. Really yeah. enjoying it. Uh, spoke to him earlier today. Um, he's actually made the rounds on some radio shows today. Oh, nice. uh, talking about Willis Reed, but he's doing real well. He's enjoying retirement. Still watching uh, every game, every movie, every TV show. Doing a lot of reading. So doing very well. All right, send him our best. Thanks, buddy. Will do. All right, talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, Steve. Bye. Take care.
could use a few browns Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy Out in the back seat of my 60 Chevy I want to thank our friend Kenny Albert for being on the podcast today. Always love having Kenny. What a great dude, man. One of my all-time favorite sportscasters guests right there. The great Kenny Albert. Took me out to dinner in New Jersey when I was there. Great time. All right, quick book club update because there's lots to talk about. In a second, when we're done, we're going to talk to Evan Drellich. It's an interview I recorded a couple weeks ago before my dad got sick. The book is called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds created sports biggest mess so we'll close that book out with evan in a minute um a bunch of new ones uh coming up the backside though first one to mention is a book that came this week called lebron by jeff benedict uh jeff has written some of the best sports books the last couple years he's really kind of uh been dominating the scene and i've liked pretty much everything he's he's put out uh, since he did, he did the Tiger Woods book, which is really good. He did the Dynasty. The the Tiger Woods book was with Armin Katayan. He's got a book coming out later in the year. Armin, we'll, we'll talk about that when that book comes. Uh, but the Tiger Woods book was Jeff and Armin, and then he did the Dynasty, the New England Patriots book uh, after that, and now he does LeBron. Uh, it comes out April 11th, 2023. Uh, I'll read it, and Jeff will be here to talk about it. Uh, another book that kind of, it came out probably about a year ago at this time, uh, if not a little bit less than that. Let's see with the publishing. Yeah, it came out sometime in 2022, and it's called Red on Red, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the Fiercest Rivalry in Football by Phil McNulty and Jim White. They'll be on the next episode of the show to talk about this baby. They'll be on together. I always love having authors on together. When I can, we did the soccer book, Messi versus Ronaldo, the end of last year, had both authors on together. We'll do the same for Red on Red, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the fiercest rivalry in world football. Uh, Also, I think on the next show uh, will be an author called Justin Bourne. Uh, It'll be on the next or the one after that, something like that. Justin Bourne is the book or the author. The book is called Down and Back. An alcohol family and a life in hockey. Uh, Justin's been on the show before just to talk pucks, but he's on to talk about this book, which is a really good, brave book that he wrote about his struggle with alcoholism and uh, his struggles that he's had personally, and also his career in hockey and his rise, being the son of a four-time Stanley Cup champion, uh, marrying a daughter of another player on that team. Really interesting life. And uh, I actually recorded the interview already with Justin as we talk now. I did it today. Even and he'll be on to talk about that book. It'll run in one of the next couple episodes. We'll see about some of the other interviews and when they get done and and how I pair them off. But he'll be on soon. Another book I got in the mail, and I don't know if it's going to go anywhere beyond that. Like I don't know if I'm going to get to talk to anyone. I, I sent an e- it's one of those ones. I sent an email asking about it. Never heard anything, and then one day got a book. 
And the book is a beautiful book. It's an updated edition. It's called The Voices of Baseball. The game's greatest broadcasters reflect on America's pastime by Kirk McKnight. And unfortunately, the copy they sent me has this awful, huge, white review copy, not resale, no return kind of a thing. And it really just takes away from how beautiful the book is. Um, But this baby was originally published, I think, a few years back and now has an updated edition uh, copyright, you know, 2023. And uh, hopefully I'll get to talk to Kirk McKnight about it. I don't know that either way. Um, but the book will be out soon. And uh, when it is, I'll reach back out and see if we can have him on. But it's a beautiful looking hardcover book with Vince Scully on the front. And I'm really excited to read it and hopefully talk to someone about it. So that's where we stand. The Voices of Baseball by Kirk McKnight. Down and Back by Justin Bourne. Red on Red by Phil McNulty and Jim White. And then LeBron by Jeff Benedict. Okay, with that said, let's finish out another book, Winning Fixes Everything, uh, by doing an interview with the author, Evan Drellich. We'll be right back. Our next guest today lives in New York City, uh, studied at the State University of New York at Binghamton, currently writes at The Athletic, and has a new book out called Winning Fixes Everything. He's making his debut on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Evan Drellich. Hey, Evan. What's up, my man? How you doing today? Welcome to the Sportscasters. I'm all right. I appreciate you having me. I appreciate it, too. Winning Fixes Everything is the book. Um, you know, actually, way back when the initial Astros, the Astros are going to win the World Series in whatever year cover that uh, Ben Ryder wrote the article. Um, we had him on that week to like talk about that cover, and then we had him on when they won the World Series. And then we um, had him on when he wrote his Astros book. I was excited to get a new perspective on everything. How did you get so intimately involved with the Astros and the story of the Astros? What made you so interested about them and, and, and want to do this book? You know, I had been an Astros beat writer for the Houston Chronicle. Uh, this was late 2013 into through, through spring training in 2016. And it was a pretty um, tumultuous time. There was a lot of stuff going on even before you get to the science ceiling scandal and you get to the point they win the world series in 17 and um i was really the first to report if you go back now nine years in 2014 on the astros management culture and there were a lot of questions about it and you know i was there during the hacking scandal which ends up sending a former cardinals executive to prison a guy named chris correa for hacking into the astros systems their database ground control right. yeah um you know, I, so I, I, I'd been up close and I knew that there were cultural issues and questions. And so when you, you know, fast forward, I had left Houston, but Ken Rosenthal and I break the sign stealing story. And uh, I knew there was a larger story there. I, I knew there was something bigger to tell besides, well, the team just cheated and got caught. Um, that there was something more going on. And so I set off to do a book and it took a long time, but, um, 
you know, I'm glad it's done. I'm, I'm glad the, the whole story is kind of out and available now. When you left the beat, you went to cover the, the Red Sox in Boston. You did so for the Herald and for WEI for a bit. And New York Sports Boston, you were there for a while doing that. Still felt close enough to the story. Still felt like you wanted to do it. Being in Boston, getting caught up in the stories there, didn't take you out of it at all? Well, you know, it's interesting. I find out about it, about what the Astros had done in, in 17 in October of 2018. So I am at that point a Red Sox right. beat writer. Yeah, Boston, yeah. Yeah, and um, one of my concerns... There were multiple concerns at the time. One, I, I just wanted more reporting. I wanted more corroboration. It's a major story. Um, I knew the Astros were aggressive with the media. They'd been aggressive with me. Uh, they had tried to get me fired back in 2015. Um, you know, a year later, a year after this, they end up calling Stephanie Epstein, Sports Illustrated, a liar, which they, they later retract. But, you know, I, I knew they were capable of this, right? So I figure, well, you know, they're going to paint me as out to get them or, or you know, they're going to try to undermine my reporting. Um, and, you know, that doesn't back you away from a story. But the other concern I had was I was working for a regional sports network. I wasn't working for, for a newspaper that had this real investigative backbone. And, and I, I considered, well, if they, you know, if the Astros attack me, you know, is NBC going to stand behind me? I was at NBC right. Sports Boston. Do that and, on my back. Right. And so basically the answer I settled on was, look, I got to get more. I got to get I got to keep reporting. I, I need to get more to be comfortable. And uh, it turns out a few months later in February of 19, the uh, outlet I was working for fires me. So I'm without a job. I have, you know, the story basically just sitting in my notebook. I, I still wanted more work to do. Had I ran it when I first found out, it would have been accurate. But um yeah, and then I end up at The Athletic, and I, I pair up with Ken Rosenthal, and The Athletic's got a large staff and the capability of doing investigations, and, you know, eventually we get the story done. But, um, yeah, it was it was a, a, a strange or kind of weird progression to come into the story, you know, not being in Houston at the time, and um, I'm glad I'm glad we were able to finally get it done. It wasn't fun in that 13 month period, uh, knowing I, you know, knowing what I was onto and and not having it out. You know, I want to go back to the culture, the Astros culture there for a second because I've been doing this show and interviewing sports writers for a long time now. I started this in 2011, and I've talked to a lot of beat writers and a lot of different beats. I don't know anyone's ever said to me what you did in terms of. You know, I'm worried this team's going to come after me. Like, they're aggressive, you know. And you've kind of taken a step back, and you cover the league more as a whole now for the athletic. And you've, you've covered the Red Sox. You've been in a lot of locker rooms. Do you find this unique to the Astros? I mean, that culture, that that sort of revenge, that pettiness, that thing that drove you to worry that they might come after you, that you needed your employer to have your back simply for reporting? Like, it seems unique I'm sure it's not, but what have you found in, in your years in terms of how that's been across the league and, and maybe even other leagues if you've done any? It's a yes and no answer. You know, I think, I think we, we clearly can see, based on the Astros' track record, that they were extreme in this approach to media, right? Again, pointing to that Stephanie Epstein, Sports Illustrated right. incident where they, the Astros accuse her of lying about the, the Brandon Taubman incident, which she wasn't lying about. 
in fact, Tallman was lying to Astro's management, and Astro's management was all too eager to accept those lies. Um, you know, in general, so, so putting the extremity of the Astros aside, when you are reporting on stuff people don't want printed, whether that's in sports or otherwise, there's a lot of pushback, and people might not hear about it. Um, but it, it certainly is real and does exist, and I think in, in the sports landscape, particularly college sports, but you know, professional sports too. They, they, as a reporter, if you're not, you know, putting out PR and if you're not putting out what they want put out, you know, you, you get beat up in different ways. And, and it's certainly not fair, but it, it, it's a reality of reporting, right? It, it's, if, if you are actually digging and, tr- and doing investigative work and <clears throat> publishing things that people don't like, <clears throat> sorry. No, you're good. Um, yeah, they're 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 gonna <clears throat> they're gonna go after you. Um, so I, I think that happens more than people realize. It doesn't always become public. You know, I think a lot of times reporters don't. You know, as a reporter, you're taught not to. You, know, the, you are not the story. You're, the, the work is uh, supposed to be the story. What you're covering is supposed to be the story. Right, you never and want so to be what, part of it. Yeah. Right, but but that can get leveraged. You know, the, 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 these organizations know that. And they know that, well, you know, the reporter's probably not going to want to be in the spotlight and is probably just going to back away or back down. And so it does, I think, at, at points take making it public how these people are behaving toward media and coverage, you know. And, and I did that, and I have no regrets about doing that. I, I, you know, I knew people would say, well, you know, you're just out to get them. And it's like, no, it's, it, I'm just telling you what actually happened. And, you know, the fact that somebody goes after you doesn't null and void or make null and void anything you report subsequently. Uh, you know, the real question is, well, are they going after you because you're doing something wrong? Certainly in my case, that was not the case. It's possible it could be the case, but, um, it, you know, in, in a general hypothetical situation with somebody, but yeah, I would wager most of the time a, a business or any entity being covered tries to go after a reporter. They're doing it because they just don't like the, accurate fair coverage you know right. and I, I think that there's probably a, a, a line that i think reporters would consider fair right like i think the reporters will expect a team to have the back of the people involved in their organization and you expect maybe them to defend their people in a way or or whatever and i think if if as a reporter you feel like you're you're reporting in good faith and you're accurate and you're being fair you don't have a vendetta you're not going against them that you could very easily stand up to that sort of surface level um, protection that the team might offer their employees or their people. But it feels like with the Astros, it's a different level than that. Like it's beyond that. Like it's a pettiness or a vindictiveness to, you know, torpedo people, regardless if they're in good faith or being correct or being accurate. It, it seems like a really nasty culture that was exposed with this with this organization. Yeah, I think there was an extremity with the Astros, and I think that bled over or was a function of leadership. Jim Crane, the owner, had had a lot of negative coverage previously, deserves negative coverage. His outside company, Eagle Global Logistics, had had a massive discrimination lawsuit brought against it. There was also war profiteering charges, sent people to federal prison. There was high-profile coverage of one of his divorces, he didn't like that coverage. And then you add in Jeff Luno, who you know, was a controversial figure in his time in St. Louis. And there was a lot of criticism he faced there. And so there was this 
overall us versus them mentality that the Astros had and it bled into baseball operations and it was you know we're screw the media I think is, is really the perspective they ended up taking even though everything that had been reported on with these people with both Jim and Jeff was accurate fair and relevant and but yeah they get to you know Jim is a first time owner Jeff's a first time GM and so they're going to be aggressive I mean, in the book you have, in 2014, Jim Crane threatening my access, this is before he tries to get me fired, where he's he's saying, you know, if we continue to get negative coverage on the team, I'm not going to visit with you. You know, basically saying he's going to cut me off. He, he actually did at one point, this, this, this wasn't in the book, it's, you know, the play-by-play of everything didn't make the book, but uh, he did at one point just totally stop talking to me because he had had another divorce and I reported on that wow. divorce. And this was a time when, you know, we'd seen divorces of major league baseball owners really affect the franchise, right? The Dodgers, uh, the Padres to an extent. And, uh, you know, so I reported on it, but yeah, it, it, there was an aggressiveness that the Astros had that I think was indeed extreme in their attitudes toward the media compared to other organizations. It might also have been aggressive, but not quite like this. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Jeff. How did you say you say it? Luno, is that right? It's Luno. 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 It, it's interesting because uh, you know stories have have faces, stories have heels. It really feels like he's the heel of the book. And I was actually talking about the book with a bunch of uh, people who read it. There's a really great Facebook group. I don't know if you're part of it called Baseball Books mm. um, on Facebook. And we, were, I was just talking with a bunch of people who were reading the book. And man, this guy takes a beating. But he had some defenders. But as you read the book, it's hard not to hate this guy. It's just like all the firing. Is there anyone he did not fire? Is there anyone left to fire? <laughs> there's a few people, yeah, <laughs> but there's a huge amount of turnover. Um, it's unbelievable. He, look, he Jeff Luno is a smart guy who uh, figured out sound ways to win baseball games. There's no question that the Astros did a good job in building a roster evaluating a roster, player development. But it's everything else that comes along with that, right? It, it's all the other elements of running an organization, a business that were overlooked or disregarded, treating people well, paying people well, giving people titles. Um, you know, the Roberto Osuna acquisition, it, it was very bottom line driven, wins and profits. And the Astros are good at wins and profits, but they were bad at pretty much everything else. And, you know, this is kind of the point of the book of, you know, does the means to the end matter? You know, how do you reconcile a team being good on the field when all this other crap is going with all the other crap that's going on uh, behind the scenes? And, you know, the cheating scandal gives people a, a Osuna, Taubman and the cheating scandal are kind of the entrees for people to go, wait a minute, this is this is too much. Um but you know, even if you remove the cheating scandal, there was a lot going on. So Luno, Luno's a complicated figure. He's not pure evil, but he certainly wasn't just this railroaded genius who you know got caught up in something bad, uh, separate of his own creation. Yeah, I mean, he he fired employees who've been there for decades. You know, he fired what was it? Uh, his first manager. He told him, "Yeah, I don't really want to have a ex baseball player as manager." Fires him the next day, and it's like, hey, can you coach today, though? <laughs> You're fired, but can you hang around? I don't know. He seemed like a bad guy to me in the book. Um, and there's a lot of debate, too, about 
we were chatting with these when I was chatting with these folks, good folks who love the book as well. Um, we were talking about how much credit he should get, how much credit he should not get. And of course, he's got a great track record in St. Louis. Then St. Louis fans would jump in and say, yeah, but his draft's really bad. He won with other people's teams. When it was his team, the team fell off. They haven't been the same since he left. Kind of the same thing with the Astros. Where, where does he fall for you in terms of how, how much credit he should get or how much credit he shouldn't get? Because um, there's a lot of winning there, right? But uh, was he opportunistic? Did he win a lot with other people's players? Uh, where do you see the balance there? It's something that was heavily debated, um, people who had read the book. Yeah, look, he was not the general manager in St. Louis. That doesn't mean he wasn't important in St. Louis, but he was also somebody who always, in St. Louis and in Houston, sought the spotlight and sought credit. He was media savvy, and he sought out people who would give him credit. I mean, the Astros were very loud about what they were doing, louder than other teams. And that's not by accident. You know, Jeff Luna wanted somebody to write a glowing book about his disruption and how smart he is. You know, I, I, the book traces his entry into the sports of Moneyball, and it kind of the the one of the very important quotes in the book. I think it's the only quote that appears twice, both in the introduction and later, is him talking to me in 2014 about. Um, the criticisms that were starting to arise in Houston, as they had in St. Louis, of how he was doing business. And, and his you know, sentiment was, did everybody love Moneyball when Moneyball first came out, the way of, the way of doing Moneyball? No, but the A's have continuous success. Um, everything will change when we win a division. You know, um, the, the A's keep winning, so they're heroes, right? And so what's the message there? Winning fixes everything. Uh, and I, I think he did believe that. And yeah, he, you know, the question of credit, Jeff Luno did not acquire Jose Altuve. He did not acquire George Springer. Right. Uh, he did not acquire, although he certainly did help, the organization did help grow Dallas Keuchel. Um, you know, even if you go back to 2014 and the 2015, they make the playoffs in 2015 and get knocked out in the ALDS almost beat the Royals, who, who ended up going on the win World Series that year. But, you know, you could even look at the roster then and go, well, Jeff was saying this farm system was terrible, but but a lot of the core of this team was actually already in the organization. You know, Altuve, Springer, Keuchel, um, Jason Castro was still there, and then he comes back years later. Um, you know, so I, I think Luno has always sought to take credit that doesn't mean he doesn't deserve some of the credit, but I, I, there were certainly other people in Houston who deserve some credit, other people in St. Louis who deserve some credit. And I think importantly, when the bad stuff happens, the cheating and the cultural problems, Luno has done everything to distance himself and, and blame other people. So at the end of the day, it's supposed to be that everything good that happened is a, is a product of Jeff Luna. Everything bad that happened is somebody else's fault, <laughs> which is really, you know, make your own judgment, but that's pretty... Uh, that's not how it works, nor uh, and I don't think it should work that way. Uh, the book Winning Fixes Everything, I think what I liked most about it is I didn't have to read 30 chapters on, you know, banging garbage cans or something. You know, it really had good balance of building the team, the team's successes, what was good, the scandals really did a good job, I think, focusing on some of the innovations in the 2010s that sort of set the team up and built 
the built the roster and, and prepared them to be champions. What do you? Th- let's we've we've kind of beaten up on them a little bit here to start, and you detailed some of it in the book. What were some of the right? Like if we were talking about the A's, we'd call it Moneyball. What were some of the things, the secret sauce that the innovations that the Astros implemented to sort of help jumpstart their team and create their success? Yeah, there's a lot of things. You know, they they arrive, they're very disciplined, um, really are going to adhere to the odds. You know, this is a big thing for Sig Dell, Luna's right-hand man who comes over from St. Louis, uh, you know, Everybody can say and still does say, well, you need scouting and you need analytics. And and yes, obviously, right? But the, but the real question is, well, how do you ultimately put them together? You know, do you just have like one column that says what the numbers say, one column that says what the scouts say, and then somebody just, you know, kind of does a gut check? Or is there some theoretically more objective way to meld them? And the, that's what the Astros tried to do. They They... You know, tried to have a uh, so-called objective way of putting together the objective hard numbers information and the the scouting information. Um, now, when you're when you're creating that, you know that objective way of melding the two, there's some subjectivity to it anyway. And this becomes a theme that you know one of the other Astros executives, Mike Fast, ends up wrestling with is. Well, our model got JD Martinez so wrong, and how could that be? You know, how how can we rely on this model if we're missing so badly this this player who changed? You know, JD Martinez transformed. Um, the Astros were very innovative with latching on and, and incorporating new technology. They, you know, a lot of their advantage they rightly believed would be in the speed of adoption. Um, you know, being, if not on the bleeding edge, literally the first to do something, then being a fast follower, doing it very quickly thereafter. They're really the heaviest, earliest users of TrackMan, which I, I don't think anybody would argue, you know, is, is a better way to evaluate the actual specific pitch attributes um, than two eyes. You know, the thing you can literally measure the spin rate and the, you know, the break, the whole thing. Uh, Pete Patillo, who's now the GM of the Giants, brings in edutronic cameras. Uh, he and Taubman set that up, and, and they use those for both scouting and for coaching. It's really high-speed cameras. You can break down everything frame by frame, and, and then you can correlate the performance that these cameras are capturing back to the statistics, and you can you can get a lot more insights. That way, you know, they also were, were right to realize that you needed to have synergy between the front office and the coaching staff, you can't have a guy like Mark Appel getting eight different messages. One, you know, one coach in the minor league says this thing, front office learns this thing, another coach says another thing. You know, you, you do need to have people on, on the same page. That process was messy. A lot of people got fired. Um, but the core idea of yeah, you, you you want people to be lined up. That's that makes sense. Um, so there was a lot of smart stuff that put them at the forefront. You know, I, I think there's an interesting question of were they truly the leaders? And the book gets to this in, in, in some capacity. It's talking to some outside executives and, you know, were the Astros number one and all the, the different things. And um, player development, I, I think they generally were regarded as that, that, that they were they set up their farm system in that synergistic way 
to be productive, um, probably faster than anybody else. But, you know, other teams like the Dodgers, the, the whole thing with the Astros was they wanted to do everything cheaply. So, you know, they have an R&D department with smart people, but they don't have like a ton of PhDs. You know, it's not like um, the actual analytical model firepower. They might not have been the strongest. You know, ground control gets hacked into. One of the problems they end up with is a lot of technical debt where they tried to move so quickly in the early years, building their models, building their their database, that, you know, they, at the end, at some point you pay for that. And you got to figure out, um, you know, ways to keep it growing. And so, I, yeah, there, there, there's a lot to unpack there, but there's no question that the Astros were, you know, at the forefront, among those at the forefront of this second, third wave post money ball, you know, the big data era, whatever, wherever you want to draw those lines, you know, what comes after Moneyball, the Astros are leading innovators. I was thinking about this when I was reading the book. I was thinking about about you really and your approach and maybe a dilemma you had or didn't have. But I think when you think about the Astros, you think about 17 and the scandal and it's a, a really hot fire issue, right? You want to piss off a room full of Yankee fans, uh, you know, bring up the home run trot. Right and 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 not wanting his jersey, you know, you can get him going really quick. It's a lightning rod thing, and the book, of course, like I said, addresses it, but doesn't dwell on it past its role in the story. And I feel like when you have such a hot button issue that's sort of in the middle of this this giant story you're trying to tell, it can be it can be a lightning rod that can derail people one way or another. You know, people have huge opinions going into the book either way and i thought you did a really good job of sort of just having your your narrative your story you wanted to tell and going through it getting from a to b 17's in there it's part of it but it doesn't do more than it has to do it, it it's an elephant in the room but it doesn't take up more space than it needs to is this is something you were you were worried about or thought about as you were writing it um you know not wanting the super hot lightning rod issue to sort of derail the telling of the other parts of the story and people's reading of it? I don't know that I thought about it exactly in those terms. Um, people are going to read what they want to read. You know, I, I think the book is does, does a pretty good job of being comprehensive and getting to all these different topics. Um, I, 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 th I think I go back to the sense I had that there was a larger story. And certainly the science dealing is important. The cheating is important. I get it. You know, it's it's what people. It's the salacious side of it. it, it you know, people, people like reading about rule breaking. I guess, but, um, you know, I I I didn't set out to write a book about just science stealing. I, I set out to write a book explaining how did we get here? How did we get to science stealing? How did we get to a point where everybody's fired? Three managers in the sport. One general manager. Um, so I, I think, I think that's just a product of, of me feeling like there was a larger story to tell. You know, I tried to give due time to a lot of different things. And, and I guess I would say, I don't know that I felt this as much writing it, but I, I do think about it now after the fact, um, if the cheating doesn't happen, all this other stuff is going on. You know, there's right. still a huge yeah. story to tell with the Astros beyond it. 
And I think that's you know, the, the, the Osuna and Taubman and cheating are what finally bring, make people pay attention to what's going on in Houston. There was a lot to pay attention to even before you had these major public incidents. And, and I think that's, and I think frankly, a lot of other people missed it. It and, wasn't until Osuna that, that people were really paying attention. And I, I am very, very proud that I was writing about the Astros management culture nine years ago now, right? Go back to 2014. Um, you know, the, the science healing story will probably be the largest story I ever break. You know, if I have an obituary, it's probably going to be a, uh, two sentence obituary that mentions Ken Rosenthal and I broke the Astros story, but you know, I, I think the work I did before that is, is in some ways, I mean, really it's, it's, it, it positions me, uh, you know, it creates trust and respect amongst a lot of industry stakeholders because it was real. There were real things to cover before the cheating. And, um, I'm, I'm proud that I was willing to pursue those issues and report on them even if it wasn't easy and caused some you know anger from management uh well before there was this major blow up yeah and that's the stuff that makes makes the book great too uh one more one more thing on the cheating stuff and we'll move on to a few more in the book and i'll let you go did um i remember we had lee jenkins on the the day after he reported the um the lebron james going back to cleveland story and we were talking about how reporting a story it's a big you know he kind of said what you said it's the biggest story i'm ever gonna ever gonna break it's the biggest story of my career whatever how did your life change both per, per, personally and professionally um after after breaking that story with ken yeah i don't know if it um you know i didn't get to quit my day job it's not like uh and i, I still walk down the street and i don't have people come up to me and be like hey, hey you you're that, that guy <laughs> No, that doesn't happen. Um, I think there is a sense of, I think it does create some sense for me of professional accomplishment. Uh, you know, it's very weighty too. It's a, it's a messy thing. People lose their jobs. It's not like you're just kind of celebrating it. I mean, I, I think there was very good reporting here on, on my behalf and Ken's. Um, but, you know, there was still a lot of reporting to do. You know, we ended up writing about the Red Sox. I ended up taking on this book. Uh, so it's been, it's been a lot, I guess, is, is the way to put it. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think it, it does attach some credibility to me. And I, and I would hope it would, because it's a major story and um, it wasn't easy. And uh, it had a real impact on the sport. Um, but, you know, beyond that, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm not thinking about it in, in, the, in the right sense. But, you know, it was tough. I didn't want to talk about the Astros stuff much. And so I didn't do many interviews. Ken and I didn't do any right after the story comes out. We wanted the work to speak about for itself. Story, yep. We, 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 you know, like I remember the day it breaks, I think SportsCenter wanted us on. And, you know, we said, no, no, we're, we're going to keep reporting. We'll let the work speak for itself. And, you know, you get a lot of people uh, talking, writing about, A, what happened, and B, frankly, our reporting, like what, like what they think happened in the process. And a lot of it was not quite right. And it was tough not chiming in sometimes, but I, I wanted to get to a point 
where I could tell this bigger, larger story. And so I'm, I'm at a point now with the book out where it's, it does feel like a sense of, you know, relief and a little disbelief that I'm finally there. I'm at this point now where it's all out. People can read it. I'm very at peace with, with the work. Um, very comfortable with it. And I'm, I'm glad I'm finally at that point because it, you know, you carry around the scandal with you for 13 months before you break it. Then you're working on a book for two and a half, three years. Uh, it takes over your life. You know, I mean, really, it, it, I certainly joked with people and I don't know that it was fully a joke that I, I never want to write about the Astros again. Right. It, it, this, this book is really 10 years of my reporting career. Yeah. And it goes back to 2013. So I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question. No, I, I, I get you. I, I got it. Um, yeah, that's, that's my answer. That's fair. The, the sportscasts are here with Evan Drellick. His book, Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. It's available now wherever you buy books. I, I was reading some reviews, and I saw this line that I can't unsee now. It said that you wrote a book if Gordon Gecko met Moneyball. Hmm. And uh, it kind of made me chuckle, and I was thinking about that and thinking a lot about the Astros and the way they did business, and we talked about it earlier. Do you know, do they still pay people much less than other, like, is there paying, is that the owner or was that something more of the, the, of the style of, um, um, Jeff, uh, now and, and his, his way of doing things, or is that carried on with, with the new ownership? Or with the ownership, but him gone, not new necessarily. You know, I, I know they made one change I'd heard that they made subsequently after the Luno leaves is that they would be, I think, I believe as a matter of policy or something close to it, they, you know, if people got requests from other organizations, they would grant those requests for interviews. Whereas before the Astros were, you know, dismissing a lot of them or not telling people about it. Um, but I think the, the cost saving effort. A is very much part of Jim Crane's DNA, but it was also part of Jeff Luno's DNA, and it was part of Jeff Luno's DNA in serving interests above him, right? So he knew what Crane would like, and I think right. Jeff wanted to operate that way anyway. The question of what is going on now, um, it would take a lot to really get to that answer. You know, the, okay, they won in 2022. Well, does that mean everything culturally is fixed? I don't know. And and you know what? The lesson of this book and a lot of the prior reporting on the Astros where everybody was saying everything was so great and glowing without digging a little bit is it takes some time and digging to get to those answers. And so to sit there and go, well, because they won in 22, everything's fixed. I, you don't know that. It, 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 you know, This book, where I think it succeeds, is getting under the hood. And it's really hard. It takes a lot of time and talking to a lot of different people to get under the hood. It's not as simple as Jim Crane saying it's better or Jeff Luno saying it's better or, well, you know, Dana Brown now. Um, you know, it, it, you, you can't arrive easily at knowing what's really going on in any organization, business, sports, doesn't matter. You know, and, and this kind of feature writer methodology of you drop in for a week, you talk to some people that get handed to you, you get a lot of access and you walk away, you know, uh, you're running a big risk there. Uh, that That's my, um, 
my know, my warning to readers and and really to reporters, frankly. I will give him credit for this brilliant thing though, because we talked about Lunau being a heel, Crane being heels. They're the the most hated sports franchise in the world, really, for a bit there. And yet last year in 2022, when they're in the World Series. Because they hired the perfect baby face, right? The baby face of baby faces in baseball and Dusty Baker. You still felt a little bit warm when they won the World Series because you felt glad for, for Dusty, you know? So a brilliant move there, you know? If, if, if you want people to forget your big heels, hire a baby face, I guess. So that worked. Yeah, I mean, Dusty, look, Dusty was hired, I, I think, very much to be a... He was a PR hire. And yeah. It doesn't mean he's a bad manager or anything like that. It just means... You're bringing in somebody who you want to change the narrative and uh, has some credibility to do so. And um, yeah, I, I, I certainly there was a lot of that sentiment of, of people being happy for Dusty. Why wouldn't you be happy for him? Um, in a long career and came very close and never quite got there. So no, it's it is good for Dusty, but it it, it you know Dusty aside, those other questions still exist. Fair. Uh, let me ask you this, kind of a last thing about the book. Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Moves. I could go on for a while about it. I want people to have a chance to read it that haven't. It's kind of brand new. It's it's kind of the baseball book at the start of the season here. Um, I think about the fans. I'm a big New Orleans Saints fan. I've been my whole life. And when we won the, the Super Bowl, uh, a couple years later, there was this, I guess, scandal, the the, the – um, Bounty Gate scandal, which if you look into it after the fact, which people don't, you know, basically everyone who pushed it beyond the initial level was was cleared. You know, um, Jonathan Vilma was on the show talking about it and saying how, you know, uh, Roger Goodell told him that they had a bounty on Brett Favre, but didn't have one in the Super Bowl on Peyton Manning. And he said, well, why if we're having a bounty system, why wouldn't we have it? And the Super Bowl is Peyton Manning. There's kind of no answer to those questions. And also, like, the whole bounty thing is, like, what, the game plan was to sack sack the quarterback? Like, hey, go, I don't know. Never made a lot of sense to me. But I think about fans, and I feel bad for fans. And I feel bad for the Astros fans. How do you think the Astros fans should feel about everything? Should they still be proud of their team and the, and the championships? Or is it that tainted, do you feel like? What do you think as a fan, someone wearing the hat, Someone who went to the games, paid the money, supported the team for years. They win, and then this dark cloud comes over them. I always feel so bad about that because I experienced a little bit in my own life. What, what do you think about the fans and how they should feel and, and how this kind of affects their their pride and, and the World Series they finally won? Yeah, I, I, I in general don't want to necessarily tell people how to feel. I, you know, I think people have a right to feel different ways that now that doesn't mean that everybody's feeling is based in fact or logic or um, is rational, but you, you know, you have a right to feel whatever you want. Um, I think there's you look, you can see a lot of deflection uh, with Astros fans. Um, and I get it. I mean, fandom is kind of by definition, it's not rational. It, it's right, short for fanatic. I was myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I was, when I was a kid, I was a, a massive fan, certainly no longer. I was a, a Mets fan growing up, but you know, so I get it. I, I, I remember it's a long time now, but I, you know, I, I have memories of that mindset of us versus them and tribalism and, and all this. Um, I, I do detect that a lot of the line of thinking with Astros fans is, is really a means of just, you know, trying to justify and trying to deflect. And, um, 
rationalize it and uh, make it okay. I, my hope is that people who read the book kind of get to that next level of seeing that this is messy. It, it, there are shades of gray here. The Astros were good at winning baseball games. They were bad at a lot of other stuff. And, and really posing this question to people, can or does winning always fix everything? Should it? You know, do you care about how the sausage was made? Do you care about the means to the end? And I think we're all conditioned, fans, media, just in general, to be very bottom line oriented. You know, there's a reason winning fixes everything is a cliche in the sport, in sports, period, or even outside of sports. And I think you know, kind of getting to that uncomfortable place of like, yeah, my team won. But am I okay with all the other crap they were doing? Some people might say, yes, I am. I don't care. I don't care what you do as long as you win at the end of the day. I think the Astros are a pretty extreme example where, for most people, that's not the case. They held up a trophy at the end of 2017, and the conversation doesn't end there. You know, that is not where, for most people, the conversation ends. So I, I think there's, there's some introspection and wrestling with the, these topics that people, I, I hope, do as they walk away from the book. Well, Evan Drellick is uh, on the Binghamton Sports Writers Mount Rushmore, right next to Tony <laughs> Kornheiser, uh, <laughs> and is on Twitter at Evan, D-R-E-L-L-I-C-H, and you can read his writing, his current writing, as a senior writer of The Athletic on TheAthletic.com. Uh, I'm sure there's a code if you're not a, uh, a member. There, there are always great deals to join on. Um, real quickly... Not about the book, but I had to ask you, how do you feel about the pitch clock so far? Major win, I hope right? It yeah. I hope it works. Okay. I, I, I think there could be – we've seen some controversy. There will be some controversy in the regular season. You hope there's no controversy in the postseason. There's a lot of changes all at once. I do think the aesthetic the look of the sport had diminished. This is due to the rise of analytics and teams like the Astros and – you know, the book makes mention of the rule changes for this reason. Um, I, I think it's the right thing to do to be proactive for the commissioner's office. It doesn't mean necessarily that, that um, their implementation will be perfect. Uh, we'll see. Nobody really knows yet. You know, you got to. I asked the commissioner at the. He did a press conference in Arizona and Florida. I asked him at the Florida one. You know, is there risk here? And he acknowledged, and, and I think to his credit, he acknowledged that, yeah, there is risk here. And, you know, so that's, I think that's important to keep in mind. But I, I, I believe uh, the general concept of trying to push this game to a better place after front offices took it to a worse place, I think is right. Do you think they ever, you wrote about this a little bit a few days ago, you think there's ever a salary cap in baseball? Or you think that it just doesn't happen? The, the pain to get to it, it, it is the, it is, the core issue that the players union has always fought against. It was at the heart of the 94, 95 strike. It's a huge, there's much more money in the sport now. Um, does Rob Manfred and those owners want to miss a year, two years? And even if you, if you miss a year, it's not a guarantee they, the players cave, right? So you're basically right. taking a gamble yep. that I'm going to shut down the sport for an extended period of time. And I might not even get the result I want. Um, Unless something were to drastically change in player leadership or player thinking, uh, I I can't see it. I can't see the owners taking on that fight. I'm not even sure they'd win it. 
and it would be really, really damaging to the sport along the way to get to that cap. So uh, if you even got there. So no, I, I, my betting, if I were a betting man, I'm not. Uh, I would say it is unlikely any time in the near future. Yeah, and, and I think it took a lot to post-strike to get back, right? I mean, it took Cal Ripken and a historic record. It took McGuire and Sosa. It took maybe the Yankees being the perfect team and the perfect market to be you know, a dynasty at the perfect time. So a lot to risk there. Last thing, uh, and I'll let you go. Uh, the, the RSNs, the folding and the loss of the revenue from the from the local sports networks, is, is that the biggest story in baseball right now, do you think? Yeah, between the rule change, yeah, I mean, we've got one big thing going on in the field, the rule changes. And one off, yeah. Off the field, you know, what's going to happen with the, the RSNs? Um, you know, does it end blackouts from a fan perspective? From an inside the business perspective, uh, the money side of it, do, does MLB successfully centralize more revenues as they, you know, go to new distribution models? It's it is a very interesting time in the sport. I mean, I guess you could say that in a lot of years, but there's a lot of change going on right now, both on the field and off the field. Yeah, and you talked about too the blackout issue needs to be fixed. You know, Buffalo is a really weird market where, you know. Cleveland Indians games and Pittsburgh Pirates games are blacked out, like as if we're just going to go there on a Tuesday night to see the game instead, or whatever. Just some really loopy rules there. Hopefully they can fix. Do you have a World Series pick? No, no. Honestly, <laughs> I'm too focused off the field. I, I'm, I'm really, I'm, 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 I'm the wrong guy for those types of questions. Honestly, <laughs> it, it's weird being a national baseball writer who's like not. The following on the field as closely as as you would think a national baseball writer is, but I do I do so much with the off the field stuff that. Um, All right, give give me this instead then to to say goodbye. If I could look at your notebook, give me two kind of stories that are brewing off the field that you think will be big topics uh, this season beyond the um, RSNs and the rules. What are you seeing off the field that you think is going to bubble up and be big? You're tracking it now. You're in early. Mm, um, interesting question. I mean, my, honestly, I, I don't know that I see much at the moment beyond the RSNs because it, it is so... So big. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's, I, you know, actually, I, the call I'm making after this is I got to talk to my editor. We want to talk about the next couple of weeks here. Um, you know, uh, don't forget about minor league uh, bargaining. You know, yeah. The minor, the, the minor leaguers are going to find too. it. Yeah, with the Florida yeah. law on that. Yeah, you know, so we're we're on the precipice here of of them having. Well, we'll see. Maybe it gets done by opening day. Maybe it doesn't. But you know, the first uh, union contract in, in minor leaguers history, and what changes that brings. That'll be interesting. Um, so let's go with that. I'll, I'll, I'll okay. point to that. I like that. All right. Do you have any questions for me? No, I appreciate you having me, Steve. All right. The book is "Winning Fixes Everything: How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports Biggest Mess." Evan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Evan Drellich for being on the podcast today. Also, Kenny Albert. Don't forget. You can find this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find us on Twitter 
at sports underscore casters. Email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. And if you're so kind to do a five-star review on Apple or Stitcher, that's always appreciated. Hey, if you're on Instagram, I'm at sportscasters there, and you can check out my new logo uh, that I had made uh, by my friend Chris Smith. Uh, he's tagged in that picture if you want to check out his art. Uh, he's one of the best there is. He does all my logos. He's awesome. If you need a logo for anything, he should be your guy. Don't forget to check out the 24-inch podcast. It's Paula, myself, and Dave Rollins at 24-inch podcast on Twitter at 24-inch podcast at gmail.com. We just put up a new episode recently uh, talking about that night in Madison Square Garden uh, where Roddy Piper kicked Cindy Lauper. And at the end of the night, Hulk Hogan fought the Iron Sheik, a pretty memorable night in 1984, December the 28th. Check that episode out. All of our episodes, you can find us on socials. And of course, where you listen to this show, you can listen to the 24-inch podcast as well. Um, one last thing, two last things, actually, I wanted to mention. One is the North-South Connection has a YouTube channel now. And on that YouTube channel is me. And it's something I never thought I'd like. I, I never thought I'd really like doing YouTube videos. For one, I'm hideous looking. Uh, you know, I've been on steroids and I've had surgeries and my face looks fat and I don't feel great about myself. Uh, but I put the camera up high so it's looking down at me. I try to find a decent angle uh, and I just enjoy doing these videos. It's at North South Connection Pod Net at North South Connection Podnet on YouTube, or you can just search North South Connection Wrestling. It comes up. I've done a few different videos on there. Uh, I did one ranking my favorite matches at WrestleMania 3. I did one ranking the Intercontinental title matches at WrestleMania 1 to 14. I did a tag team titles match ranking from 1 to 14. I've done a few reviews of Seinfeld episodes with Aaron and Justin on there. I did a draft with Aaron, Justin, Jenny, and Tim. So I've done a bunch of different videos on there. If you want to check them out, North-South Connection on YouTube. One last thing I've been into. A couple weeks ago, I wrote a blog, one a day, five days total, uh, for my friend Randy at Live on Four Legs, a Pearl Jam blog and podcast, liveonfourlegs.com. And if you go there, you can find the blog that I worked on. I told one story a day about one Pearl Jam concert per day that I attended, kind of the background, who I was with, why that show sticks out of the 86 I've been to. I only wrote about five, so you figure the five that stuck out out of 86, probably pretty special nights, and they made for great blogs. All right, one last thing for me today, and my father had a stroke, uh, and we haven't had a show in a few weeks because I've been living with the fallout of my father had a stroke. It was a Saturday night, Saturday afternoon maybe. He called me on the phone and he goes, just want to let you know I had a stroke. <laughs> and I was like, what? Yeah, I had a stroke. Carl brought me to the hospital. I'm at the hospital. I had a stroke. And I was like, all right, well, what does that mean? Like, you're talking, obviously, so that's good. You know, it's not like you died. I, I don't think that's good. But what happened? I think it could mean a lot of things. You had a stroke. You didn't know much. Ended up getting moved to a different hospital that night. It turned out it was probably the best case scenario for you had a stroke. Uh, my dad, I found out, hadn't been to the doctor in like 10 years. And uh, 
I think in a way this is a reminder from God that when you're in your 60s like he is, you got to take care of yourself. You know, you got to go to the doctor. You got to get checked up on. You got to make sure you're you're doing okay. You got to make sure your blood pressure is good. You got to make sure your cholesterol isn't too high. You got to just check on yourself. And the weird thing is he goes to the dentist like six times a year. He's obsessed with the dentist. He's always at the dentist getting something done with his teeth. But he hadn't been to the doctor in a decade. You know, so I like to think that a higher power gave him a huge kick in the ass and said, you know, get your shit together. But it was scary for a couple of days. You know, he, he's had limited movement on his left side. Um, his speech has been fine, but he's weak. And, you know, every day that's gone on, it's been a few weeks now. He's much better now. Uh, but at the beginning, you know, I, I was forced to kind of face my dad's mortality a little bit. And I don't know if I've ever done that before. And, you know, he was upset. When it happened, he cried a couple of times. I don't know really I ever seen him cry. You know, maybe at my grandpa's funeral. Beyond that, I'm not sure. Um, so I, I just seen some vulnerability in him that I hadn't seen in the past and had to face that. And it was scary, you know. Uh, but And it's interesting, too, because I've been so through so much myself health-wise. And that's easy for me. You know, as hard as it can be sometimes, it's easy. It's something I'm comfortable in. It's a role I'm comfortable in. And I don't need much from other people when I'm in that spot. Um, I, you know, I don't have people coming in every day. I don't need a lot of visitors. You know, I need some supplies. And as long as someone brings them to me, I'm usually good for a while. Uh, and I let people live their lives. People are busy, you know. Just because something's wrong with you doesn't mean everything stops for them. Um, and I think he had gotten used to being on the other side and taking care of me when needed, helping me when needed. And he certainly did not make for a good patient. He was miserable at the hospital before he was discharged. And he was miserable when he got home from the hospital. He's doing better now. He's staying with my grandmother who is enjoying taking care of him. Uh, and I think it's maybe a good thing for both of them to have that time together. She's 88 years old, you know, so I don't know how much longer she'll be here, but for now she's here and, I think it's it's a good thing for them. You know, before my grandfather died in 2005, it was one of the times that I was sick, and I spent some time there over the summer, stayed there a whole summer, you know, the summer before he passed away. And, and if I wouldn't have done that, you know, I wouldn't have had that time. So maybe like it was for me with my grandfather, this will be something for him with his mother uh, and, be, and be good for him. But I, I think I bring it up just to say, you know, make sure you're getting yourself looked at. Uh, one of my friends said to me today, John, shout out to John. You know, I haven't been to the doctor since the pandemic. You know, there was this really strange time where basically doctors are telling you, don't see the doctor. You know, don't get colonoscopies. Don't come in for a checkup. Don't do routine screenings that prevent cancers from being stage four, you know. And I think it's going to turn out to be a mistake in the end. So if you're one of those people out there, who hasn't been to the doctor since the pandemic, it's time to go back and get a physical, get checked out, you know, turn your head and cough, you know, bend over and, and, and stay loose if you can, because the finger's coming, get your shit checked out, make sure you're okay. Cause my dad didn't. And, and he found out the hard way uh, that we are, we are, we are, we are only immortal for a limited time as uh as they say in the songs so all right that's it for me we'll be back very soon i'm going to vacation with paula and tammy to columbus ohio for a few days 
next week, but I will get a podcast up before we scoot and skedaddle, or I won't, and I'll get it up when we get back. Uh, But either way, there should be a podcast next week as well. So with that said, I am out of here. 